welcome to the podcast of the Believer's Bible Class, a part of the historic First Baptist Church located in downtown Dallas, Texas. Each week we share the Bible lesson from our longtime teacher, Doug Brady. Doug has studied the biblical scriptures throughout life and is knowledgeable in both ancient Greek and Hebrew, which makes his explanations of scripture all the more interesting and most certainly all the more accurate. Professionally, Doug is an attorney, although he considers his Bible teaching as his godly profession. Today we look at part two of our study of apostasy, as it is found in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verses 5b to 6a. Class teacher Doug Brady has told us that this tiny piece of scripture is among his very favorite and is something he has been waiting to break down, as he does with all scripture as he teaches in our class. And believe it or not, there will be a part three next week as we continue. Apostasy, as we have learned, is taking over our churches and our personal understandings of what God expects from us in these last days. Knowing this, we need to change our thinking and follow what God has made for us. Be sure to have your Bible open to 2 Timothy chapter 3 as we begin in just a moment. The Believer's Bible Class is part of the historic First Baptist Church located in downtown Dallas, Texas. Our class meets every Sunday morning at 9.15 a.m. in Lavorne Hall, located on the lower level of the new Worship Center building. Our class continues to grow each and every week as we are all hungry for understanding the deep meaning of so much of Scripture. And class teacher Doug Brady spends many, many hours studying and preparing each week so that we can build our hearts with God's Word. If you are in the area, we look forward to having you visit our class. Well, I see Doug is at the podium ready to begin this lesson, so open your Bible to 2 Timothy chapter 3. Here now is our longtime teacher, Doug Brady. We are studying the apostasy that is coming, that Paul has predicted that would be here soon. And here we are in this new time, and Paul has been admonishing Timothy that this apostasy is growing. And it seems to me it is sweeping like a tidal wave across the churches of our nation. Well, how bad is it? Well, somebody just shared with me this morning that she heard David Jeremiah speaking on this subject of apostasy. And that he said, in his opinion, 70% of the churches have been taken over by apostasy. 70%. That's amazingly large to me. But you know, we're in a little cocoon here. And we don't see it. And we need to understand what's going on. And we need to be prepared for that. Because people who attend our churches today, they're not interested in God's Word, it seems like. You know, in the first book that Paul wrote to Timothy, he said this to him. Until I come... Give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. And as I've been studying, meditating on this passage, I'm beginning to see something here. This is a test, a testing passage, I think, for us. Now, does our church publicly read the Scriptures in the service? Yes. If we see our church stop doing that, we know we're in trouble. If you see our church stop teaching the Bible as it was written, as we're going to talk about today, and we start teaching books like The Purpose Driven Life or something like that, we are then in serious trouble. I heard something about Rick Warren now becoming the chancellor of the Spurgeon uh, Seminary over in London. Is Satan alive and well in planet Earth? If we see a lack of exhortation in our church and encouraging believers, we're in trouble. 
I think this is a three-pronged test that we need to keep in our minds. Am I telling you that we're failing this test right now? No. But we need to keep this test in mind so that we can know. If we hear, well, you know, we don't think it's going to help worship as much. We're not going to read the Bible anymore. We need to stand up and say, whoa. No, uh That's not what we want. If we say we're cutting out Bible teaching, we don't need that anymore. That's when we say no. We don't, we don't want that. Now. Is the altar's call part of the implementation? No, it's not. But we need to keep praying for that altar call. We need to understand that we need to cling to God's word. And we need to read it publicly and devote ourselves to study and proclamation. Now today, we're going to start a consideration of the priority of teaching God's word in the local church. Because that's what Paul is going to tell Timothy. Teaching it faithfully, teaching it comprehensively, and to fight against even the slightest compromise in spiritual matters or biblical truth. We have to all join in on this. We have to all be vigilant on this. We cannot allow compromise. When we studied the book of Daniel, we realized God never honors compromise on spiritual matters or biblical truth. Never. Under any circumstances. Now, the verse I've been waiting all along to teach, uh, the, the verses, is 16 and 17 of chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. And we're going to start there for a moment and then maybe retrace our steps a bit. Let's, let's start with a word of prayer. Father, I pray that you'll be with us this morning. I pray that your Holy Spirit's hand will be heavy on us and that we will come to understand what you're trying to say to us this morning. Help me to be obedient, help me to be faithful, and help me to be true to your word. And Father, help us to be anxiously waiting for the sound of your trumpet. I pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. All right, verse 16 starts out this way. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 starts this way. All scripture is given by the inspiration of God. As I sat down and opened my computer and started looking, what are the key words here? I realized that maybe one of the most important words to start with is this word all. That word tends to be rather comprehensive, all. And then someone spoke to me, and he said, Doug, you were right, all, but you haven't done all. Go to 2 Timothy 3.15. You studied this last time, Doug, and you went carefully over, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you wisdom that leads to salvation. And you stopped. Why? Well, I didn't have an answer. And I said, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to go back to the last part of that verse, and we're going to open it up, and we're going to unpack it, and we're going to come to understand it so there can be no questions in our mind, because this last part of the verse is the most important part of the Bible anywhere we look at. Now, what do we in the Believer's Bible class believe in when it comes to the Scriptures? Verbal, plenary inspiration of the Scriptures. The verbal, plenary inspiration of the Scriptures. What does that mean, verbal? Well, you know, theologians and biblical scholars all have to create terms that are hard to understand so that they can take their time in explaining them to you, you see, and you can't understand them without their explanation. Aren't we glad that lawyers and doctors and IT specialists and engineers, they never do that, come up with terms like that that you can't understand, but theologians do that. Let's look at this very carefully because I want you to see. Two parts. First, verbal. Verbal inspiration means that every word of the Scripture is God-given. 
The idea is that every single word in the Bible is there because God wanted it to be there. There are no exceptions. Every word, every punctuation mark, every grammatical setting inspired by God. Plenary, the second part. That means that all parts and the whole of the Bible are divinely authoritative. This includes the things such as genealogies in the Old Testament. All parts of the Bible are of divine origin. That means the whole of it is put together. Even though that Bible was written over a 1,500-year period on three different continents with three different languages and, and, and multiple authors, still, all together, one book inspired by God. So as we begin today... We're going to begin with that portion of verse 15 that I passed over last time that we met. So once again, look at 2 Timothy 3.15 and look at this last phrase. Salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. In coming before God, what is our object of what we want or should want. What is our object of what we should want? Salvation. If you don't have salvation, you're lost. You are hopeless once your final decision is made. You know, that's interesting. A lot of people say, well, my final decision is not made until I die. You are flat wrong if you think that. Your final decision is made when the last time God comes to you and says, Doug, will you trust me? And I say, not right now. Well, I just said not right now. I didn't say no. Not right now is no now. And that may be your last chance. And we need to understand this concept of the last chance. So the object of our faith is salvation. This word in the Greek is used throughout the New Testament to mean salvation as the present possession of all true Christians. And the future salvation being the sum of benefits and blessings that will come to Christians as God promised them. The Greek word here is soteria. We get an English or theological term from that, soteriology. Soteriology. What is soteriology? Well, Soteria has salvation, ology is study, it's the study of salvation, and the doctrinal study of that, and uh, a lot of people have, this word, salvation, soteria, appears 48 times in the Greek New Testament. Do you think it appears, the, the word, not this Greek word, but the word salvation, appears more in the Old Testament or the New Testament? Maybe twice as many times in the Old Testament. We should understand salvation is a gift to us. It's a gift as a result of his grace towards us. Now, yes. That means that he was really, really trying to emphasize it to the Jewish Or maybe they were more in need of it. than. But the fact is, we need to see this next question. That next question is, we must seek an answer. What is the means for acquiring this wonderful gift? What is the means for acquiring this? And you will find the means in the next two words. Through faith. Now, some of you may have heard something different recently. I'm going to tell you through my study of the scriptures what I believe the Bible says no, believe is too soft of a word. What I am absolutely convinced of, the Bible says. This two words is diapistis. Diapistis. The faith is a noun. Through or dia is a preposition. Now, I know some of you hate grammar, but we're going to need to look at a, a couple of things so that you can see it. How many of you ever took Latin in school? Anybody? Do you remember in Latin, you have nouns that are declined? They're declined. And you have five declensions. Nominative, genitive, dative, accusative, ablative. Right? Now, 
Each of those things is used for one part. If it's nominative, that means it's the subject of the sentence. If it's genitive, it's either possessive or prepositional. If it's accusative, it's a direct object. If it's dative, it's an indirect object. If it's ablative, it's object of preposition. That's a simplified form of it. But you see, in Latin then, because of how they spell the word, they can put the subject at the end of the sentence, anywhere throughout that sentence they want, because it doesn't matter. You know it's the subject because of how it's written. In English, you can't do that. If I intend the boy to be the subject of the sentence, I have to say, the boy hit the ball. I got to put his, the boy before the verb. And then the direct object ball after the verb. If I switch them, the ball now becomes the subject and the boy becomes the direct object and the ball hit the boy. You see, that's English. The same thing is true in Greek. It's declined. So what it's, how it's spelled is important. You also know that if you have a preposition with that noun, they have to match in their declensions. If you have one genitive and one ablative, they don't go together. So you can know for certain what does go together. And here, this phrase, dia pistas, or pistuo here, is genitive. Now, what does that tell us if it's genitive? It tells us it can be possessive, and it also tells us it can be a prepositional type phrase in the English. Now, you look at the Greek a little more carefully, and as you see this setup with this forms of words, you want to look carefully. Is it genitive or is it accusative? Because that has a difference in the meaning. And if it is genitive, it can be one of two things, genitive of time or genitive of means. Genitive of time or genitive of means. In this verse, it's not talking about time. It's talking about means, the means of. So what is it saying? Faith is the means of salvation. Do you see that? That is important. Does it include any other condition there for salvation other than faith? Well... Are there any other passages that would support that? Is there any other passage we can find that has the exact same grammatical setting? I think there are. Let's look at this one first. For by grace you've been saved through faith. That's not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Do you see through faith? That is the exact same grammatical setting. So what does that mean? For by grace, you have been saved by means of faith. Now, there's some confusion in this verse that people want to say, and that's not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. And this phrase in the italics, it, is confused sometimes. They want to say, well, it is standing for faith. It's not. It is standing for salvation. That's what it says. Say, by means of faith, so as not of yourselves, the salvation is the gift of God. Salvation is the gift. And we need to see and understand that because it is so important to doing this. Now, you say, okay, here's two verses. Some people disagree on this verse. Two people disagree on this verse and the prior one. Are there any other verses that support that? I'm going to show you three doctrinal and one exemplar. The three doctrinal, first one is John 1, 12, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. That word believe is pistis, the same as faith. It can be translated faith or believe here. It's either one. This is all it says, believe in his name. It's faith and faith alone. Faith and faith alone. Second one. John 3, 16, we all know that for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish. What is the sole condition for salvation there? Belief. One more, Romans 10, 9, that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart 
that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now, this verse here is a little, a little different. It's, it, there's conditional. This first statement is prefaced upon the second statement. If you don't have the second statement, the first statement doesn't work. Does, do you understand what I'm saying? If you don't believe in your heart, whatever you confess doesn't count. But you will believe in your heart, then you will confess it. Why? Because you believe it. You see, it's a belief that doesn't just accept something. It's a belief that acts. And that's the point Paul is trying to make here. Thank you, God. Now, those are three doctrinal type statements. Let's look at it as an exemplar. And this is important here. Acts 16, 29. And he, this is the jailer who was in charge of the jail in Philippi where Paul had been jailed. He called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And after he brought them out, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now, let's stop right there. What must I do to be saved? Is that an important question? Yes. Who is the greatest evangelist to ever live? Paul. Who is the greatest theologian to ever live? Paul. Is he going to lie to this man? Is he going to be able to be misunderstood? Is he going to be confusing with this man? Or will he make it as clear and truthful as possible? Is there anyone who knows better than him what to say in response to this question? No. And what did he say? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see one condition there and one condition only? Believe. That's what he is saying here, and that's what we need to come to see, how important this is, because this is the soul. Now, let's talk uh, just a minute about this faith. Where does it come from? What is it? What do we have here? Let's look at two passages. Number one, Galatians chapter 3 and verse 2. It says, this is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Here, with faith, is the translation of the single word. It's not, there's no proposition here in the Greek. It's just pistis. And the word is in the genitive. And what it's saying is hearing that is belonging to faith. It's possessive here in the genitive. The hearing is belonging to the faith. Because you have faith, because you heard. You see? Let's look at another example of this. Over in Romans chapter 10, verse, starting in verse 12, where it says, For there is no distinction between Jew or Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who is calling Him. For whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Interesting. That's a quote from the Old Testament. How then will they call on Him whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him in whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news of good things. However, they did not all hear the good news. For Isaiah says, the Lord says, Lord, who has believed our report? So faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of God. Do you see that? This is important to see. Faith comes from hearing, hearing from the Word of God. You have to, what, what is Paul trying to say here? It's very important for us to see how this works. What the Scripture does is allow the Holy Spirit to use God's Word to convict us of sin. Once we are convicted of sin, we then have our need for salvation made clear to us. Why does a man need to be saved if he doesn't have a reason to be saved? There's a lot of people in this world who think, I have no need to be saved. Why? Wait, wait, I'm better than a lot of people. My father struggled with this. My father was the best man I've ever met. But he had this problem. He was so good, he used to think, well, you know, I'm better than everybody else. You know, he wouldn't openly say that and you'd have to drag it out of him, but that's the way he felt. And if you heard his testimony, he said, you know, when I compared myself with everybody else, I compared usually favorably. 
God's certainly not going to get rid of me and not them. I, I would be at the top of the class. And, and it seemed like he was at the top of the class in almost everything he did. But the fact is, he came to realize it doesn't matter how good you are, Jack. Without Jesus' righteousness, you fail the class. And he did, fortunately. And so I'm here. And I wouldn't be here if he didn't. But the fact is, because my mother would have never married him. But uh, once a man is convicted of his sin, his need for salvation becomes clear. And as he recognizes that need, he can then choose to trust in the only one who can save him or to reject. That's the choice he has to make. And that's the choice he's responsible for. So finally, we have this question to ask. What really does this concept of faith, trust, or belief really entail? We have to recognize first that our faith must be directed at Jesus Christ and Him alone. Faith alone in Christ alone. But faith or belief means to be persuaded of something and hence to put confidence in that object. Now, that's, this is important. That is, it's a sense of reliance upon, not mere acceptance that something is true. Does Satan understand that Jesus is the Son of God and that He died for the sins of the world? He knows that to be true. He was there when it happened. But he's not saved. Do his angels also know that? Yes, they do. But they're not saved. You see, it's reliance upon that truth. That's why we describe faith as a non-meritorious process. The merit is not on you. Because your faith realizes you cannot save yourself. The merit is in the object of your faith. Jesus Christ can and has saved you. That's what's important to see. And as we look at that. Now, finally, if you look at this passage, we see the object of our faith is salvation. The sole condition for salvation is our faith. Who is our faith in? Christ Jesus, and He alone. Now you think, well, Doug, come on. That's about as simple as it can be. Uh, yes, in a way, but not today. What if you place your faith in the Jesus that is described in the Quran? Well, what, what do you mean, the Jesus? Jesus is not in the Quran. Oh, yes, He is. Now, He's referred to as Isa or Isa. You, you look in verse 1930, uh, and by the way, when you try to get a transla- an English translation of the Quran, I mean, they're all over the place. But this is the best one I could find. He, Jesus, spake, Lo, I am the slave of Allah. I have, he hath given me the scriptures and appointed me a prophet. Did Jesus write any scriptures? No. Now, he knew him, but, you know, he, didn't, he wasn't the author, the human author of any scriptures. He wasn't a gospel writer. He is the Word, but he's not the author of our scriptures. The Holy Spirit is, but he's not the one who wrote it down. If you believe in the Jesus of the Quran, no matter how much faith you have, you are not saved. That's just all there is to it. He is the Word. Yes. Which, which book in the Bible did he write? No, the Holy Spirit did, you're going to see. It was inspired, but human writers wrote it, and that's important to recognize. Let's look at another thing. What if you believe, what if you believe in the Jesus of the Book of Mormon and, and uh, Pearl of Great Price and Doctrine of Covenants? But if you believe in that, well, if a Mormon missionary were here, some of you have met them, you know, it's not if they come to your home, it's when they come to your home. They would tell you this, Jesus 
is the Son of God. He's the only begotten Son in the flesh, and He was born of a virgin Mary in Bethlehem. The accounts of Jesus' life and ministry recorded in the Gospels are true and correct, they would tell you. The miracles Jesus performed and that he suffered in the Garden of Gethsemane and that he submitted himself to death on the cross, we believe in that too. He was a willing sacrifice and a substitutionary atonement for sin. And you say, gosh, that sounds like the same Jesus I believe in. But when you dig deeper, and let me tell you, it is really fun to cross-examine some of those missionaries when <laughs> they would tell you human works are necessary to be saved, including exercising faith in Christ, repenting of our sins, receiving the sacraments or ordinance of salvation, and rendering Christian service to your neighbors. If you don't do that, you won't be saved. In summary, the undergirding doctrine of the Book of Mormons is that we are saved by the grace of God after we do all we can do. Mormons truly don't believe in a virgin birth. You see, they say Jesus is separate from God, the spirit brother of Lucifer, and that he was married. Is that the Jesus of the New Testament? No. Well, what about Jehovah's Witnesses? They'll come to your door and they'll tell you about Jesus. The Jesus they believe in, they'll tell you, was a perfect man. That's where they stop. And that he is a person distinct from God the Father. They also teach that before his earthly life, Jesus was a spirit creature whose name was Michael the Archangel. That would mean someone who is a created being. And he became the Messiah at his baptism. You see, according to Jehovah's Witnesses, Jesus is a mighty one, although not almighty like Jehovah God. And they don't even know how to say God's name correctly. But the fact is, if you believe in the Jesus of the Jehovah's Witnesses, you're not saved. You must believe in the Jesus of the Bible to be saved. So before we go any farther, let's make sure salvation should be the aim of every human being and without it, you're lost. Salvation is conditioned through faith and through faith alone by means of faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God and yet part of the triune trinity of God as spoken in the Bible. Now, that's what we have to understand and that's important to understand as we go on. But that brings up another question. Are the scriptures really reliable in telling us these things? As compared to the writings of the religious beliefs referenced above and others, Paul's going to answer that question now with this magnificent verse. It's found in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. All scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Now we're going to focus today on the first part of that verse. All scripture is inspired by God. You notice again the word all. What scriptures does that include? Well, what about the scriptures that weren't written at the time Paul wrote this? Well, here again... Where's this coming from? It's coming from the Holy Spirit. Does the Holy Spirit know what books are coming? Of course he does. Some people want to say, well, the only books written at this time was the Old Testament. No, that's not true. Paul wrote, what, 13 books? 12 of them had already been written. And he's right near the end of this one when he's writing this. A lot of other of the New Testament books had already been written when he made this statement. So, yes, it includes all the Bible, all of the Bible. Now, that means all 66 books. Now, you have this word inspired. I want you to look at that, inspired. Inspired is a translation of the Greek word theonoustos, theonoustos. Now, you get a longer word in Greek, that means it's usually a combined word. And this one is theo meaning God, neustus meaning breath. 
What does this word literally say? The scriptures are God-breathed. Now, this is very, very important to follow this concept of God's breath here throughout the scriptures in what's going on. And, and I want you to see this to understand this. God breathed. Now, one of the situations here, and here theologians come up with another word here, and the word is hapax legomena. Hapax legomena. What in the world does that mean? It means that word was only used in the Greek New Testament one time. So we can't look anywhere else to see where it was used. It's used only once. It may even be that Paul came up with that word. So scholars different on that. But the word clearly declares the scriptures are a divine origin that can be described as the breath of God. Now this is very, very important. Now this word... Theonoustos is akin to a word used by Peter in a companion passage that describes the exact same process. If you want to look in your Bibles, it's in 2 Peter 1, 20 through 21. It's interesting to me, 2 Timothy is which book in the order that Paul wrote? Last. 2 Peter is what book in the order that, Paul, that Peter wrote? Last. Here in their final statements, they're both making a statement about the authority of the Scriptures. And you need to see this. Is there any two pillars stronger than those two? Except you maybe include John in that group. But those two are both mighty men of God. And look what Peter wrote. But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will... But men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Now, the word translated moved here is the word pharaoh in Greek. And it means to bear, to carry, to bring forth. To bear, to carry, to bring forth. You see, that doesn't seem to have any relationship to God breathed. Well, it does. Give me a chance to explain. Now, Mark, my friend Mark, has done some sailing in his life. I don't mean sailing on White Rock Lake. In fact, I don't even mean sailing like in Lake Texoma. I mean sailing in the open ocean. Mark, have you ever found a time when you were sailing and all of a sudden there's just no wind? Uh, do you do much movement? Doesn't matter which way you turn the rudder, does it? Now, have you ever been sailing and all of a sudden you can hear wind coming and then you start to see the sails filling up and then you start moving? You've seen that, right? That would be an event described by Pharaoh. You ever been out on a fall day and you see leaves blowing across the yard? Not because you're blowing it, because they're just being blown. Why? Because the wind is carrying them along. Have you ever been in a rainstorm and you see the rain? It's not falling straight down. It's falling at an angle. Why? Because the wind is carrying it along. That's how this word Pharaoh was normally used. Now you can say, Doug, you're saying that. You know, you don't teach Greek in a seminary. Do you got any examples? I would say, I'm glad you asked, because we'll look right here in Acts chapter 27. Here's, here's one. But before very long, there rushed down from the land a violent wind. So what are we talking about? Wind called uh, Iroquio. And when the ship was caught in it and could not face the wind, we gave way and let ourselves be driven along. That driven along is Pharaoh. Another verse later after that. After they had hoisted it up, they used supporting cables and undergirding the ship. And fearing that they might run aground on the shallows of Sirtis, they let down the sea anchor and in this way let themselves be driven along. Pharaoh. Those are the only three places this word is used in the Greek New Testament. Second Peter chapter 1, Acts chapter 27. And what it's talking about is wind, a movement. Now, technically speaking, when I exhale, 
What's coming out? Wind, which is air moving. Is that something that seems to be identified with God? Yes. Because when I'm speaking to you, some people say, well, what's coming out is a bunch of hot air. <laughs> well, how did it all start? And God said, let there be light. Came out of God's mouth, his breath, and it happened. Do you see that in Genesis chapter 1, verse 3? Now, God then came and he took some mud, some dirt, and he formed a man. Was that man alive, Don, when he formed him? Well, let's see what happened. And he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Do you see that? At the beginning, life started for human beings by what? The breath of God. Now, we're going to talk about pure humans now, or maybe I ought to rephrase that, semi-pure humans. Who is the most wicked person that will ever live? The Antichrist. What will be his undoing at the end of time? Well, let's look at that real quick in over in 2 Thessalonians. Then that lawless son will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end the appearing of his coming. Do you see what the scriptures are? They are the breath of God. And they are alive. Exactly. And we need to come to see that and understand what he is saying here and the power of it. Yes. When they came to arrest Jesus, they said, we're looking for Jesus. And he said, I am he. And they all fell. Yeah. The breath knocked them over. You can find example after example of this and how awesome it is to see. Now, these men, when they wrote the scripture, they didn't really write their thoughts. They wrote Lord God's message to humanity. And I want you to see this process because it's described several places in the scripture. How God uses these men as an instrument to pen his message. Let's look what Jesus said. He's going to talk about Psalm 110.1. But he's talking to the Pharisees and Sadducees. And he describes this in Matthew 22.43. He said to them, then how does David in the spirit call him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies at his feet. Now, the part I want you to consider in this verse is this. In the spirit. Do you see that phrase? In the spirit. That's key. What he's saying is, David is writing this psalm in the spirit. The Spirit is controlling him. Now, one of the things that's important to see, can the Holy Spirit control a man? Yes. Can a demonic being control a man? Yes. When the demonic being controls the man, who has control? The demon. The demon. He forces. When God comes asking to control a man or woman... They have a choice, and they choose to allow that control when God wants to use them. Think, perfect example of this to me is a woman by the name of Mary. And when the angel appeared to me, he told him, the Lord's going to come upon you, and, and uh, you're going to be found with child, and it's going to be a, of, the, of the Lord. And what did she say? Behold your handservant. Do with me as you wish voluntarily chosen to be used by God to bring the Savior into the world. She could have said, no, I'm not risking my life like that. But she did not. She allowed God to use her in the same way David was. You know, as a side note, could you imagine, no, you probably can't, what it would feel like to be in the Spirit, writing scriptures, God's breath flowing through our hand as we wrote. Wouldn't that not be awesome? Awesome. Let's look at another example here I want you to see. In Revelation, 
starting in one. I, John, was in the Spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet saying, write in a book what you see, send it to the seven churches. What is the prerequisite for writing the Scripture? In the Spirit. It's coming from God. God's breath is flowing through that man as he writes that book. Another example, Jeremiah, he's comparing non-scripture with the prophecy of God that God has given to him. Thus says the Lord of hosts, do not listen to the words of the prophets whom are prophesying to you. Now, who's saying that? The Lord of hosts, God. They are leading you into futility. They speak a vision of their own imagination, not from the mouth of God. Where does his come from? The mouth of God. Now, it's interesting, God still uses the personalities and the individualities of the men that he had to author the scripture. Think about this a second. Peter. Peter grew up on the water. He knew the water better than most people. He was on the water all the time. You know, where would he spend all night? Fishing on the Sea of Galilee. He'd sit by the water during the morning to mend the nets and get everything ready for the next night. Do you know, he writes more about water and baptism and flood than anybody else in the scriptures. Who wrote most about the prenatal situations and care of John the Baptist and Jesus? Luke. And he was a? A doctor. He's interested in those kind of things. Who wrote most in the Greek New Testament about financial matters and those types of things. Matthew, what was he? In fact, there's a story in the Greek New Testament about Jesus and Peter, and Peter is having problem with taxes, and he, Jesus says, I want you to come with me, uh, cast a line in here, and you're going to catch a fish. When he catches the fish, just like Jesus told him he would, he said, now open his mouth. And he opens his mouth. There's a coin in there. Take that coin and pay the taxes. Who's the only one who, who recorded that story? Matthew, the tax collector. You see, God still used them. But we have to understand this. Every book in the Bible, there is dual authorship. There is capital A author, the Holy Spirit, and lowercase a, the man who has agreed to allow the Holy Spirit to write scripture through him. Dual authorship. And I want you to see that. That is important, what Paul is trying to, to state to us. So the doctrinal statement we arrive at is this. The scriptures, both Old and New Testaments, are the inerrant word of God equally and fully. And they are without error in the original manuscripts. The Bible is God's revelation to mankind and is the final authority of our faith and practice. The final authority. Yes, ma'am. Read that to me. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said. How could you remember all the stuff that Jesus said over three and a half years or more? Well, if the Holy Spirit's the one doing the remembering, it's pretty darn easy, isn't it? Now, there is a phrase in that doctrinal statement that brings some people some pause. In the original manuscripts... Do we have any original manuscripts? No. Why not? You know, I've thought about this this week. Why don't we? Do you remember when they were being killed in the wilderness by fiery serpents and they put a brass, God said put a brass staff up with a cross piece and have a bronze serpent on there. And if you look at it, believing I'll save you, they'll live. But do you think they just threw that away after they left? No. But you know what they started doing eventually? Worshiping it, bowing down to it. Do you know when Gideon had his great victory in Judges, which we may get to one day here after a while, probably be a while, but he had a, an offering and he made a golden ephod to represent and celebrate their great victory over the 135,000 that came to, to wipe them out. What did they start doing with that? Do you know? Now, this is where I probably get myself in trouble. Hope I don't offend too many people. The Catholic Church has long been a collector of relics, and 
They claim they have splinters of the cross that they worship, parts of the crown of thorns, part, nails that were used. There's some people, scholars who have said, you know, if we put all those splinters together, the cross would probably have three or four of them, crosses, but be that as it may. Then I heard, I, can, I still can't believe this, there's someone who believes that they have a vial of Mary's milk. God doesn't want to give us anything to worship other than him. And we need to understand that. But then again, if that's the case, we need to come to see what's going on here, this original manuscript. How good do we have it? Well, one of the things that we're looking at and we need to understand is this. Scholars have gone through, are there any changes in what we see from quote unquote must have been in the original manuscripts? And by that, what you say is you got these copies of, of manuscripts and they may be copies of copies. How do they compare? They put it in a mathematical type equation so they could come up with an answer. And it's less than 1% different from what the original manuscripts would be. And none of it would apply to anything important in the scriptures except one passage, which we're going to talk about in a minute. Let me give you an example. Now let's look at this. This is a copy of a writing near the portion of the Declaration of Independence kind of thing. And I want you to look at that. It's written in cursive. And I look at that word where the arrow is being pointed. Do you see the uh, S there at the end of the word? That's a, that's a long S. We used to write that way in, in continental times. If you were copying that now, would you make an S like that or the S the way you normally make it? People don't know what that S is. You'd make... When they found the Dead Sea Scrolls, they then were able to compare with manuscripts much later. How much change have been? And they would find, usually the only changes were letters that were no longer in use and had new forms of letters, or words that had been now spelled differently than what they had been spelled before. You know, if you were over in England... And, you know, I use a, an English a lexicon for my Greek. I'm constantly getting the word F-A-F, pardon me, F-A-V-O-U-R, favor. Well, that's not the way we spell favor. Let me put it a different way. That's not the correct way to spell favor. You know, those English, they don't know the English language. Uh, so those kind of changes. Now, you said there was one place. Yes, there is one place. And it has to do with a difference in the priorities of textual criticism. Textual criticism. This is a science, this textual criticism. And, you know, there are people who spend their whole life doing this kind of thing. But it has to do with a passage at the end of the Gospel of Mark. Now, I'm going to try and give you as most unbiased explanation of this as I possibly can. If you were reading... In the Gospel of Mark, in the New American Standard, or the ESV, you would find when you get to verse 9, it would contain a note, which for the most part reads, some of the oldest manuscripts omit verses 9 through 20. They're not there. If, on the other hand, you were reading either the King James or the New King James, you would not find such a note. And there is a difference. The difference is in their priorities of textual criticism. The NASB and the ESV states their priorities are, we're going to go with the oldest manuscripts available. The, the New King James say, no, we're going to go with the majority of the manuscripts. The one that has the majority, that's the one we will go with, that, that consideration. And so, which do you accept? You know, some people say, yeah, but some of these older ones, they can't be trusted, or something like that. So you have to make a determination for yourself. One of the ways, though, that I have found 
is if you're going to include this, if you're going to consider this passage in Mark, is there anything in there that's contradictory to the rest of Scripture? Because if there is, then it shouldn't be in there. If it's not, then maybe it should be in there. Do you see what I'm saying? So, I'm going to open my Bible to Mark chapter 16, and I want us to look for just a second before we go on at verse 16. He who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved. How many conditions are there for salvation in that verse? Let me read on. These signs will accompany those who have believed. Now, it's not these signs may accompany. These signs will accompany those who have believed. In my name, they will cast out demons. They will speak with new tongues. They will pick up serpents. They will drink any deadly poison and it will not hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick and then they will recover. Now let's look at this uh, just a second. Frank, I'm going to ask you some questions. And uh, I just want to see what your answer would be. Have you ever cast out any demons that you know of? No. Have you spoken in new tongues that didn't exist before? No. Have you picked up any serpents? And by the word serpents, we mean poisonous serpents. <laughs> Have you drank any deadly poison and it not hurt you? No. Uh, have you laid hands on the sick and they for certain recovered because you laid hands on them? No. Well, then you're not saved. <laughs> now, I, Frank's my friend. I know Frank is saved. So you see the point I'm making here. This is concerning to me. But you need to make your own decisions on that. Read it, study it, see what you think, and adopt the textual criticism priorities that you want. You know, we're getting a little past time. Let me end with a couple of verses today. We're going to quit a little. Uh, we're not going to have time to finish. I went too long, and I apologize. But I think this is important for us to see. The first one I want you to consider is how Jesus views inerrancy. Matthew 5.18, he says this, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until it is all accomplished. Is Jesus saying even the letters are important? Absolutely he is. The smallest letter in the Hebrew language is a yud, and it looks like our apostrophe. He's saying that will not pass away. In Matthew 4, 4, when he was in the middle of this situation, he said, and he answered and said, it is written, men shall not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. You notice this word every. What's he talking about? All scripture. Do you see that? And finally, in John 17, 17, sanctify them, that is the disciples, in your truth. For what is truth? Your word. Jesus believed in the errancy of the scriptures. Now, looking back, all scriptures are inspired by God. They're God's breath. We can rely on them. And going back a step further, salvation only comes conditioned on your faith in Jesus Christ. You recognize that you're a sinner, but that Jesus died for you to save you from your sins and you rely upon his sacrifice to save you. And that's it. It's a gift. A wonderful gift. A gift you could never buy. Only a gift you can receive. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for this time that we could gather together. I thank you for this magnificent scripture. Help me as I study to be faithful in understanding exactly what your word says and to sharing it here with my friends. Father, I pray that you protect our church and that you keep the apostasy out of it. Father, please guard us against spiritual compromise. Please help us to stand up for what's right. Please help us to understand that all of us have the job of intercessor and that we need to be on our knees praying for that protection for our church first and our nation second and anxiously waiting for the sound of your trumpet.
pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus, and the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen.